0: Hey everybody, and thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by philosopher and University of Notre Dame professor James Audison. James is a research fellow for the Independent Institute, as well as a senior scholar at both the Fund for American Studies and the Fraser Institute. He is the author of numerous books, including Actual Ethics, What Adam Smith Knew, The End of Socialism, Honorable Business, and the book we discussed today. Seven Deadly Economic Sins, Obstacles to Prosperity and Happiness Every Citizen Should Know. This is my conversation with James Audison. I am joined today by Professor James Audison to talk about his book, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Can you start by telling us a little bit of your background and how you became interested in this topic? It's a book on economics, but you're a philosopher by training. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a strange uh, journey to get to uh, have a philosopher writing about economics, you're right, but um, I became interested in graduate school, I wrote my dissertation on Adam Smith's moral theory. So Adam Smith, in addition to being um, one of the founding fathers of the discipline of economics, um, was also a pioneering moral philosopher, um, and I wrote my dissertation on his moral philosophy, a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments that he wrote, uh, came out in 1759 initially, Um, But writing about that and also thinking about the the moral theory that he was um, developing alongside some of his uh, colleagues and peers like David Hume, for example, um, that got me interested in some of the political and then economic recommendations and and analyses that were coming out of that period. Um, So that got me a little interested in the history of economic thought. So I began reading in the history of economic thought from the 18th century, moving forward through the 19th to 20th and now the 21st centuries. Um, and I became something of a fan, um, um, a student of and a fan of the discipline of economics, largely by learning about its history. Um, and uh, that's what got me interested in this topic, and this is really what the book is about, the, the idea that um, there are lots of things that people have very strong opinions about related to economics, and yet many people don't know what, ec- what economists themselves have to say about these issues. Um, and so what I thought might help, if I could be so bold, as to offer help to economists, um, is um, um, looking at some of the things, a few of the things, that that enjoys broad consensus support from economists, regardless of where they are on the political or economic spectrum, um, that uh, have some consensus support, um, and that I think uh, would benefit people both in trying to organize their own lives, make decisions in their own lives, and also thinking about policy um, um, in such a way that even people who don't already have economic straining already, might be able to appreciate. And that's really the audience of
0: the book. In writing the book, or at one point in the book, you you discuss this, your background and how uh, for your dissertation, you were initially going to write about Hume and you discovered yeah. Adam Smith as a friend of Hume. So why not read a little bit about him? And mm-hmm. you mentioned that very little has been written about the theory of moral senti- sentiments which right. I find I found that really surprising. Uh, did you did you publish a book length treatment of, about the theory of moral sentiments or was that your dissertation or Uh no I did after so after writing my dissertation you're right uh, so my dissertation
1: was really a comparison of Adam Smith's and David Hume's moral theories um and after writing that uh, my my first book that I wrote was an attempt at a kind of comprehensive reinterpretation of Smith's moral theory. Um, it's a book called Adam Smith's Marketplace of Life. Um, so that was my first book came out in um, in 2000. I was very proud of that. But, sorry, 2002. I don't want to get that. Get, better get that date straight. 2002. Very proud of that book. But you're right. When I had what I hadn't known that Smith had even written a book about uh, moral theory, um, you know, I had uh, known about the Wealth of Nations, of course, which is his now much more famous book. But when I discovered that he'd written this book, I decided to write it to read it, sort of on a lark. Um, in graduate school, read that book, couldn't believe my eyes. It was so full of of insights, novel insights, penetrating analyses of human psychology, um, and really just trenchant observations of the way human beings interact with one another as social creatures. I thought it was astonishing, and I didn't think there was anything that came before it that had really attempted to understand human human morality as a kind of social phenomenon. Um, I didn't think anything had uh, tried to approach it like that. so i I raced off to the library to see what you know all the other philosophers and historians of philosophy had written about it and found out that it was basically nothing. There were very few. There were a few notable exceptions. But among philosophers, at least, they hadn't really paid much attention to it. Some economists had uh, made reference to it, but, um, you know, mentioning it is a lot different from actually reading it and discussing it and trying to figure out what's in it. Um, So, yeah, that led me to think that this was something that was worth exploring. Um, And so that was uh, the subject of my dissertation or a big part of my dissertation and also of my first book.
0: So this book is organized around, well, it's first of all, it's called Seven Deadly Economic Sins. So it's your play on the seven deadly sins, and you compare various economic fallacies or mistaken ways of thinking about economics to sins, both on the personal and the social level. Why is it so important to address common economic confusions? Uh, Good question.
1: So um, let me start with the seven deadly sins, not the economic sins, but the deadly sins. You know, you might wonder, well, why those sins, as opposed to any others, and why are those seven? You know, why not eight or six, or what? You know, wh- um, why are those particularly deadly? And I think the reason for them. Um, so it's uh, so we have the list: it's pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Those are the the standard seven. Why are those the seven? Um, I think for two reasons. One is because human beings have a a particular um, inclination towards each of those. So there seems to be something about each of them that seems sort of naturally almost baked into us, alluring. Um, It's very easy for us to engage in um, or indulge uh, pride and greed and gluttony and sloth, et cetera. These just seem to be endemic uh, weaknesses of the human characters. That's the first thing. But the second thing is I think those things, in addition to being just sort of naturally um, a, a natural weakness for us, when we indulge them, they tend to have a particularly strong negative effect in our lives. So they they create uh, harm in, in our own lives for ourselves. They also put distance between us and other people. So they cause problems for our relationships with other people. And they can cause problems with our relationships with, um, with larger entities like society, for example, or um, if you take a the theological perspective, God. They can separate us from God. Um, so I think those um, uh, those seven sins um, have those two features. On the one hand, uh, we're naturally susceptible to them, and they have, a secondly, a particularly strong negative effect on us. So what I wanted to do is uh, to think about, is there an analogous set of economic assumptions that people make that, um, on the one hand, are, seem natural, seem almost intuitively true, even though they aren't true, even though economists agree that these are actually mistakes we make. And that also have a particular, a particularly negative effect on our own lives if we um, act on the basis of them, or um, in our sort of societal or our group lives, um, n- uh, national or otherwise, um, if we enact policies on the basis of them. And I think there are, I mean, I picked seven. Actually, uh, I'll let you, um, you and your audience, know that there's actually eight in there, maybe a few more, if you, you know, little <laughs> attached ones, um, but. I picked that number for obvious reasons. But those are things that I think um, really are both um, they seem intuitively alluring, even though they're false. And um, if we um, if we act on them, they can cause all kinds of havoc and um, cost and destruction in our lives.
0: So I want to I want to ask kind of two questions. One, I want to jump into one of the fallacies. So the first fallacy you talk about has to do with zero sum thinking and why that's a mistake in economics. So I want to. I'm hoping you will talk a little bit about that, but also to just say something about why it is, or is there a general explanation for why these kinds of fallacies seem natural to us, even though they're not true? Is there some evolutionary reason why humans might tend to make certain predictable mistakes?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and I do speculate a little bit about that. And I think, but I think it's, um, you know, to be to be fair, I think you'd have to say it is speculation about why these particular um, fallacies seem to be su- you know, we seem to be susceptible to these particular fallacies and i do engage in a little speculation in the book about that or at least i entertain with some uh, some other people's speculation about it and connecting it um, in one way or another to our evolutionary history this connects i think right you're right uh, to the first uh, the first economic deadly sin that i that i identify which is um seeing the world in uh, zero sum terms so the fallacy i um just so that uh, we know what the or what I claim is the fallacy most of human history has been exactly that so throughout most of human history if one person or one group um, got more wealth than another person or group it has tended to be through what um, what economists sometimes call extraction in other words it's at another person's expense so as soon as one person or group gets enough power over another person or group what do they do they conquer them attack them enslave them steal from them um, colonize them, etc. This has been the 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 sad and ugly history of humanity throughout um, almost all recorded history and almost all human experiments and so in in uh, societies. That's what we've done. That's all zero sum or so-called zero sum because um, if I conquer you or if I steal from you, if I just um, colonize you. Um, well, then what I'm doing is I'm taking wealth from you and accumulating it for me. So it's I'm enriching myself, but it's at your expense. So it's not as if both of us are gaining. It's just me gaining at your expense. So it's called you know a loss for you, a um a gain for me, a loss plus a gain is just a zero sum. Hence the t- the term zero sum. So what I call the fallacy is to think that because that often happens and has often happened in human history, um, that therefore, the only way that anybody can become wealthy um, or increase in wealth is through extractive zero-sum exchanges like that, and that's something I think is a uh, is indeed a central economic fallacy. Because one of the things that can happen in a commercial society, um, in a free society or an open society, if you and I mutually engage in mutually voluntary transaction, well then we're both gaining. The reason we would both say yes um, is because the the exchange or partnership. Um, um, is worth the cost and indeed exceeds the cost, the gain from it exceeds the cost to both of us. So we both, um, uh, we both gain from it. Those kinds of mutually voluntary, mutually beneficial, so positive sum transactions, um, those are much more characteristic in a commercial society or in a market society, in an open society, um, they lead to net gains. So I think that's a very important fallacy um, to expose. But I did wanna say one quick thing about your question um, and maybe you wanna talk a little bit more about this, but the question about why we're so inclined to see the world in zero sum terms. Here's one possible explanation for that. Human beings evolved as a, a small group species. So we evolved in very small groups that were largely nomadic um, that that followed either the seasons or the or um, naturally growing um, crops or herds of animals that we wanted to um, we wanted to eat For almost all human history, human beings were in these small groups and they were also uh, very close to the margins of subsistence. So um, you know they were they were right at the margins, not really being able to accumulate very much, not accumulating what we might today call capital or being able to engage in capital investment because, They were moving, um, trying to track uh, herds and also facing the constant fear of predation from other groups of human beings. In those kinds of circumstances, um, when we face an existential crisis, we all need to come together in a kind of a unity. We all need to um, have the same goal of survival. um, And we all have to be on the alert against any threat from the outside because we are so close to the margins of subsistence. In a circumstance like this, Here's one one idea, is that one of the psychological traits that would have served us very well in those circumstances is to be very acutely aware of some people gaining more than others. In other words, inequality in our small group. Because the small group is so close to subsistence, typically speaking, anything anybody has, we all share. We all have to share. We're a small group. We're basically like a large family. Everybody's a cousin, if not more closely related very small group, we all share everything. If one of us starts to get a little bit more, then that means that one of two things has happened. Either you've discovered some cash of food or some uh, some supply that you're not sharing, some bounty that you're not sharing with us, which means you're not part of our group anymore, you're you're separating yourself out or you're cavorting with some other group that's paying you off and you're can you become a kind of traitor to us. Either way, you're a threat to our unity, you might be a threat to our survival. So um, we might have to, we're going to have to deal with you. So that kind of psychological instinct that served us very well in evolutionary times does not serve us so well in contemporary times. And that might be one of the reasons why we're so inclined to see the world in zero-sum terms today.
0: Now you go over several objections and try to address objections to, you know, why why maybe this isn't a fallacy or why maybe there is a, there is a more um, charitable way to interpret this kind of thinking. So even if positive sum transactions are the norm in typically free commercial societies, is it still worth being concerned about? Is it morally problematic that, you know, one, people might be mistaken in systematic ways about what is going to benefit them. So even if they believe in advance, they will benefit, maybe they won't. Or is it is it problematic that people don't necessarily benefit equally when they engage in these kinds of exchanges?
1: Uh, both very good questions. So, yep. So there, there could be lots of things to be worried about. You know, and I, and I kind of hinted at this a minute ago, but um, because it's the case that uh, that for a lot of human history, the way people gained something was by taking it from others. Um, I think it's uh, perfectly reasonable for people to be a little suspicious of. You know, if you have some people who are gaining a lot, you know, you wonder, well, exactly how did they get it? Did they get it through? extraction or did they get it through some kind of mutually beneficial cooperation? So, you know, th- there are plenty of cases yet today where people are actually engaging in um, in extraction and various kinds of extraction. So that's one set of, I think, entirely legitimate worries. But another one is, uh, you know, connected with what you were saying. So if you and I exchange, suppose it's mutually voluntary, um, it might even be mutually beneficial, but it might also be the case that I gain a whole lot more than you do. Um, is that by itself something that we should worry about? You know, cases like that, I think are going to depend a lot on the particular circumstances that we're talking about. but I think here's one way to think about it. If it's the case that I enjoy a lot more options than you do, um and the fact that you have very, so maybe your circumstances are so straightened that you really don't have many options or all of the options are terrible. um, you only have two or three options. you know, you imagine the kinds of cases where, Either you do what I say or you're going to starve to death or or you have to if you, you don't either work at my factory or you're going to have to go scavenge in the trash dump or something where they, those are the only t- options you have. I have many other options. Then I think what that does is that that puts a, um, an obligation, I would say, um, that that places an obligation on me. To think about not just is it a more a mutually voluntary transaction that we're thinking about, but is it actually benefiting you? So yes, I'm benefiting from it, but do I think you're actually benefiting from it? And one way to think about this, you know, it's a different question to ask whether, um, you know, whether the law should uh, intervene in cases where we're not sure that there is sufficient um, mutual benefit. But just thinking from the individual perspective and what I would call a moral, what I would think of as a moral perspective. Here's the test of that. If I were on the other side of the transaction, if I were in your shoes as opposed to mine, and knowing what I know, would I still be happy with the offer that's being made to me? Um, in other words, would I say, "Yeah, this is still worth doing"? And if I think that's the case, then um, then maybe it is. You know, this might be an exchange or transaction worth uh, considering. But I don't think, and th- I think this speaks to the point you're raising. I don't think it's enough to say that a transaction is mutually voluntary. I think that's necessary, but not sufficient. In addition to be that, so you have to have that. Yeah, you never coerce anybody into uh, you know in, in engaging with you against their will. But beyond that, I think you also have to have a kind of moral judgment where you say, yeah, I, do I think this is something that's actually benefiting you, making you genuinely better off? And I think it's perfectly appropriate and maybe even uh, morally required for us to exercise moral judgment on that question as well.
0: And another consideration you raise in the book that helps to justify these kinds of circumstances is the fact that, hypothetically, that both people have multiple, perhaps very many, alternative options on mm. on offer. To the extent that that's not the case, you know the moral concern might be heightened. If, like you said, if my if my only other option is scavenging or you know, something very you know odious like scavenging in dumps or child prostitution or, or real things that people face in in very poor areas where you know their their default options are very very unattractive. That puts a maybe a higher burden, moral burden on the other the other end, the person on the other end of that transaction. But you also bring up that predictably the kinds of circumstances that lead people to have so few options are exactly circumstances where we are not systematically in a free commercial society that respects what you call the three P's, persons, property, and promises. Um, And to the extent that we are in such a situation, people's options multiply and they're less likely to be found in those kinds of circumstances.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think they multiply very quickly. And um, that's one of the great things we've discovered historically is that um, as soon as people's uh, three P's, their persons, property, and promises are protected, Then very quickly, in fact, almost immediately, what people begin to do as soon as they feel secure in those things, what they begin to do is to figure out ways to partner and associate and cooperate um, for mutual benefit. Um, They don't have people don't have to be told to do that. They don't have to be instructed. They don't have to have somebody else tell them. Well, you should you should go into this industry or that industry. People figure out ways to benefit um, to improve their own situations very quickly as soon as that's the case. So you're right when you think about these cases where the f- cases we talk about in political philosophy where you know you have a company that's the only company in a developing country let's say and you know, they want to have a sweatshop and the people who are working for the sweatshop or might be candidates for working for the sweatshop. You know, the alternatives they have are, you know, all only a few of them and they're very bad. And what are the obligations on the um, um, on the part of the people who own the sweatshop or the people who own the company? If you take a step out of or step back, as it were, above the, just the case, of just that case of the one company and the one employee, in the real world, typically where you have cases like this are when there are rules and restrictions preventing other firms from starting. Um, They're preventing workers from starting their own firms. They're preventing people from joining markets or trading with people in other parts of their own country or in other countries. There typically are restrictions on things like that. In other words, people's persons, property, and promises are not protected.
0: And sometimes Uh, outright land confiscation. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, And not, and and even if it's not outright uh, land confiscation, oftentimes it's um, you're you're treated. People are treated as squatters without actual right. They don't have title to their land, or they don't have title to their property. So um, they can use it as long as somebody doesn't, you know, somebody from a, a, cor- a corrupt government official doesn't want to have it or something and just take it from them. All of those things create enormous downward pressures on the ability to try to exchange or trade or associate. Um, Or partner for mutual benefit. Yeah. So you know the question about making options, uh, making um, offers to people, you know, just making an option or making an uh, adding to a person's option set isn't by itself going to make somebody worse off. Maybe it doesn't make you better off because if the option isn't a very good one, but it won't make you worse off. But having lots of options and increasing the number of options that definitely makes people better off, and it happens very quickly. And that's the kind of thing that can happen in a society that protects the three P's.
0: So you talk at some point about what kind of about historically what it's been so rare in the last roughly 0.1% of the history of humanity is the only time we've started to see some uh, growth of societies that routinely protect persons, property and promises. And it's something it's been something of a big academic question why that got started, how humanity Started to respect those things, or 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 maybe that's reversing causation here. But how 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 human progress really got kicked off in the last two hundred or so years, and you weigh in on that with uh, you know an answer that is that draws on I think a lot of different scholars, Deirdre McCloskey. But you you cite good institutions, institutions that protect these three Ps, as well as widespread cultural attitudes that are respectful and admiring of. These kinds of things, as well as you know, commercial or entrepreneurial activity, but you put culture first. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Great question. And I, you know, I'll preface what I'm about to
1: say with saying there's no consensus about this. So there there's quite a bit of disagreement about what actually led to the changes. Um, that I mean, there's, there there isn't any disagreement um, among economic historians that in the last couple hundred years or so, there's been a spectacular increase. Uh, unprecedented increase in real wealth. So that happened. Um, Question is, why did it happen when it did as opposed to some other period in human history? And then also, why did it begin or why did it start in the parts of the world where it did as opposed to other parts of the world? And there's a lot of disagreement and argument about
0: that. And I think still uh, one of the most important, like, relatively open questions in human history it seems like yeah to me.
1: absolutely yeah i agree and i i would say you know thinking of you know in social science it's one of the big the big questions that's still out there why it began to happen when it did and where it did you know so i draw on the work of a lot of scholars and i look at um, different uh other people you know various positions on this but one thing i i one position i do take is I've been persuaded by the argument made by uh, by people like Deirdre McCloskey and others that institutions don't enforce themselves. So uh, having on a piece of paper, this is our constitution, let's say, um, isn't going to matter a lot if the people um, who over whom that would or to whom that would apply don't support whatever is in the constitution or don't support whatever the formal um, or legal or public institutions are. So institutions require um, support uh, by human beings. What that tends to mean is that usually, people's opinions, attitudes, views change, and then institutions change to catch up to it. I mean, now there is a feedback mechanism and a feedback loop there, so they tend to enforce or reinforce one another. So really, you know, parsing out the chicken and the egg there is not easy at all. Um, uh, but um, what I think began to take place you see it in the a bit in the 17th century, growing much more in the 18th century and then taking off in the 19th century is a spreading idea um, that uh, a kind of moral idea uh, that uh, on the one hand, uh, maybe the moral way to treat people is to re- is to assume that just about everybody, and you can see how this can spread out through concentric circles, you know, starting with one small group of people and then extending it to more and more more people, um, Just about everybody has something we might call human dignity. Um, that deserves to be respected somehow um that idea began to spread and that um, and it had specifically commercial uh, implications too like well anybody well maybe not anybody but you know spreading numbers of people um, should be able to enter into a contract um, and have it be binding um or have title to property um, and then um, be um, be entitled to damages if somebody steals their property or um or betrays um, a, co- a contract with them This idea that more and more people were moral agents, full moral agents, capable of owning property, entering into agreements, et cetera, that began to spread. And I think that really is what unleashed um, the great enrichment, uh, as it's been called. Um, Because as more and more people could enter into these agreements, that means more and more people's property was respected. More and more people could just have a go at things, attempt to actually, you know, I'm going to try to start a business or I'm going to try to, you know, hang my shingle out or I want to do this lots and lots more people could begin to experiment um, in ways of applying their own talents to improve the lives of other people. And as more and more people's three Ps were were protected by the institutions that were reflecting those changing attitudes, um, then you get like the miracle of compounding interest. You get this rapid uptick in um, overall prosperity that's generated. Um, So that's a kind of, uh, you know, very much an abbreviated history of what happened, but I think that's the story that suggests that it really was the changing view attitudes that people had and then the institutions that changed to reflect those attitudes.
0: And just to relate it back to your seven deadly sins that that discussion is is around the fallacy of believing that human progress is inevitable that it's for a person born today they were born during progress they've grown up they've always seen progress even if sometimes it's it's easy to think otherwise from watching the news, all the major that should probably say something about this, because just just this fact is is often surprising to people or even if they know it, they act and talk as if it is untrue, which is that uh, on virtually any large, broad metric of human well-being over long periods of time, things have been improving consistently for quite a long time. Yes, that's, a, right. that's actually a tension. I feel like um, uh, maybe you can say something about that, that there is there is maybe a, a an assumption that the progress we're used to will continue. But there's also a pessimistic bias that maybe overlooks the the progress that we actually do have.
1: Ah, that's interesting. That's a nice point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me emphasize both of those then. So on the one hand, as you say, by by virtually any way we're able to actually measure, observe, and measure um, human well-being, um, we have uh, had enormous improvement over you know the last two centuries, and in many cases, in just you know the last several decades. Um, so everything from the proportion of human beings living in absolute poverty—it's below about nine percent, um, which is the lowest it's ever been in human history. Um, if you look at other things like longevity access to health care or access to electricity or educational attainment levels. On a very large number of these criteria, we have improved to levels. We're not, it's not perfect that, by any means, um, but we have improved to levels that um, have never before been seen in human history. So on the one hand, you might say, well, why aren't we all just jumping for joy? You know I mean, because we, you know, we have so much bounty and though the world is not perfect, we've improved in so many ways. It's so much better than it was. Um, and it's hard for us, I think, and this is uh, something as a professor, this is true for me, uh, but, you know, talking to my students, it's hard for me, it's hard for us to appreciate just how difficult and challenging human life was for almost all human history. But even just a couple of generations ago, um, you know, if you think about yours or my grandparents who didn't even have electricity, let alone the Internet or computers or, th- you know, imagine your life now without those things, without, um, without air conditioning. Um, and without the internet, without smartphones, without Google, um, it would be a much more challenging life. Could you survive? Yeah, of course you could survive, but um, it'd be much more difficult life. Well, that's a life that many people living today either are experiencing now or even in places like America remember. I remember before the, I'm old enough to remember before the internet was a thing. So in many ways, our lives have gotten much better um, across many of these margins from uh, wealth to longevity to um, uh, many other things. On the other hand, we seem to be pretty um, um, pessimistic about things, and I think the the fallacy that you mentioned that I, that I talk about, or that you that you're um, connecting this to, is the idea that progress is inevitable. I think um, so. We 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 tend to think that because throughout our lifetimes, or as far back as we can remember, and maybe our our memories are getting shorter and shorter, but um, you know everything there there's constant improvement. There's a new iPhone that comes out every six months. There, there's always or seems to be almost always economic growth. There are always new companies that are coming out with new products, et cetera. That gives us the illusion that this is always going to happen or might always happen, more or less regardless of anything we do. So, One aspect of that fallacy that I point out in the book is, that, is to just make us aware how historically rare this prosperity that we're experiencing now is. in In, in human history, it's extremely rare. Um, and that suggests that it might also be fragile. It's dependent on institutions that enable it, including, you know, our attitudes that we were talking about before, a certain kind of cultural attitude. But I w- do want to say something about this notion of, uh, uh, you know, people being upset about it. So this, you know, this um, tension that you <laughs> mentioned, things seem to, be, in many ways, seem to be better than ever, and yet, you know, we all think that it's going to hell in a handbasket or something. Why is that? Well, here's a speculation for you. I mean, I'd be happy to hear what your thoughts are, but my speculation about that is. Because on so many margins, we've made so much improvement, this gives us the idea that um, effectively, perfection is just around the corner. We're just a step or two away from basically solving all the problems because we've solved so many of them. And we've solved so many problems, or at least addressed so many problems, that it gives us the idea that we effectively have the capacity to address, maybe even solve basically all of our problems. So if there are any that remain to be solved, any problems, issues, concerns... That remain to be solved, then it seems to be only because there are, you know, we don't have the will to do it, or we're just not, um, you know, putting forth enough effort. But we certainly have the ability to. So people get upset that we're not putting forth the effort, on the assumption that we surely have the ability to solve these problems.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I, that sounds right to me. I, I had a thought also. Is it the Kuznets curve that? is uh, yeah. wealthier societies becoming more interested in environmental care. Yes. I, yeah. That it's something like that, that, you know, caring a lot about the environment is sort of a luxury good that people concerned with their survival don't don't care very much for. And as people in yeah. societies become wealthier, they they get higher aspirations. Well, I think that loud, detailed, and frequent complaining and griping is a luxury good. Um, <laughs> you, you would just... You probably wouldn't see as much of that. People are just going to put their heads down and plow the fields when they're poor. And as they, you have so much leisure time and ability to read that you get to demand more complaining, which is some people find fun. I don't know. That's probably not the whole story, but that was kind of my thought. Yeah, no, I, uh, you, you may have put your finger on something. We do seem to have maybe there's a correlation between increasing wealth and also increasing complaining. I want to jump into another, uh, actually, let me back up because it seemed related to something we were just talking about. You mentioned the fragility or the potential fragility of this progress. You reference at some point in the book a work that I've been meaning to read and haven't got around to, but is, I think, uh, fascinating, which is that there are only so many, there are only a few effective ways to affect uh, significant material equality, and none of them is very attractive. And the places where it has happened maybe illustrate the fragility of human progress. Can you talk about w- w- what the name of that work is, if you recall? I'll put links to some of the stuff we're discussing, in, in addition to your book, obviously, on the show notes if people want to check it out. Can yes, you talk about The Four to. Horsemen of, of Equality, or, or whatever the authors called it?
1: Right. So it, it's a book by uh, a study by Walter Scheidel. Uh, S-C-H-E-I-D-E-L, Walter Scheidel. Um, the name of the book is The Great Leveler. Um, it's actually quite a fascinating book. I recommend it um, uh, very strongly. What he does is he looks at um, the history uh, in various human societies of attempts at creating more equality in society. And so he looks at hundreds of experiments um, in um, various ways you know, throughout h- human history in different parts of the world Societies of different sizes, uh, organized around different kinds of activities, um, and he says it turns out. And I think um, I think it's fair to say, from his perspective, he was uh, somewhat disappointed in the result that he that he that he came up with. But um, he says he thinks that the only ways that human beings have been able to figure out to um, create substantial, especially lasting, relatively lasting equality, um, are through what he calls the four horsemen, and the four horsemen are mass mobilization warfare, transformative revolutions, state collapse, and catastrophic plagues. <laughs> so uh, so war, revolution, state collapse, and plagues, or pandemics. He says those are really the only things. So in other words, through death and destruction are the only ways that we can actually create equality. Um, and he argues that there have been lots of attempts to reduce the levels of inequality in society in other ways, through wealth redistribution, through taxation policy, including um, inheritance taxes or progressive income taxes. And he says the the variations on these themes have been tried for hundreds of years in different ways um, in human societies. Um, And they don't really, he says anyway, they have no real effect on inequality in society and wealth inequality in society. The only things that do are these, what he calls these four horsemen. So that's a very interesting finding, um, and I think what that suggests is that, I mean, in the connection maybe to this fragility that we were talking about, is that you know wealth can be its own you know worst enemy. I think um, in some ways, and what I mean by that is that you know think about you know after World War II in, in the United States, you know people who returned from World War II, what they wanted to do was to create a um, a society in which their children would be better off than they did <clears throat> than they were. And so, what did the boomers do? While well, they created a lot of wealth and industry, and there was a lot of productivity, partly with an effort so that their children would not uh, have to suffer or even really be aware of um, a lot of the suffering and difficulties that they and other generations had sur- uh, had suffered. That is a perfectly noble and good intention, um, and I think that's sort of uh, you know that's uh, partly sort of the American way that we want our children to be better off than we are. Fast forward to now, you know, think about a couple of generations later to say the millennial generation. What does that mean? Well, we have an enormous amount of wealth. And what we what parents and grandparents are able to do with that wealth is to protect and insulate and maybe even inoculate their children and grandchildren from the bad effects, the negative consequences of bad decisions they might make. So if things go wrong, our wealth enables us to sort of clean up the mess. What that can give people the impression of is that wealth itself is sort of an already existing thing. It's just out there. And I think a lot of young people um, and sometimes you know this is maybe true from you know from students that I have or younger people, they have what I sometimes jokingly call the milk comes from the grocery store theory of economics. Um, in other words, they don't really have a sense of what's required to produce wealth, to produce goods and services um, because it's just sort of all out there. It's like it's as if it's just there waiting to be taken or plucked from a tree or something. Um, and so wealth can it can protect us against um, bad consequences, but it can also give us this idea that there really isn't anything we need to do to maintain it, to up, to keep it up. Um, and that's what I think is the fr- or can be part of the fragility of it. Um, and so when I say that in, that um, the institutions, including the attitudes and the culture that are required to continue prosperity's growth require maintenance like any other institution. People have to understand what they are. They have to um, transmit them. They have to respect them in their own behavior. And then they have to transmit them to others, including their children and grandchildren. And if they don't do that, then these kinds of things can go away and they can go away pretty quickly.
0: And if the background conditions of your life are ubiquitously wealthy, it's easy to imagine that as the normal state of affairs Mm -hmm. and get this backwards impression that when you see a homeless person or when you hear about very poor people in other parts of the world, that that poverty needs some very elaborate explanation when, you know, as you point out and other economists have pointed out, it's kind of the opposite. Poverty doesn't really need an explanation. It's been the default state of humanity for most of its history. Wealth requires an explanation, especially large levels and sustained wealth.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good, uh, exactly right. And um, as I mentioned in the book, you know, if you think about Adam Smith's great work, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, it wasn't called um, it wasn't an inquiry into the nature and causes of the poverty of nations because I think for Smith, uh, you know, poverty was sort of the default setting for humanity. Um, yeah, most people are poor, and in fact, you know, if you if you want to explain poverty, what do you have to do in order to be poor? Well, literally nothing if you do absolutely nothing you will be poor. So the big question as you say and the big question for Smith was how is it that some places and some people were able to generate more wealth. That's really the interesting question. What was required in in, in order to enable that? And you know if you think about you know, even push this out a little bit further, you know we sometimes have the view which i think is understandable because you know we when we look back historically we like to have a sort of rosy view about how human history um, was building and progressing and culminating basically to us. Like we're, you know, the ape, whoever we are, we're at the apex of uh, history and uh, maybe the end of history or something. Um, But as other authors uh, like Matt Ridley, for example, has pointed out, there have been innovators um, throughout human history. So there's been, there's been trade as long as there have been human beings, there's been trade. There've been innovators and entrepreneurs, um, people with this kind of spirit throughout human history. So what makes it different? What, became different, say, you know, in the last couple hundred years that generated all of this wealth and prosperity for people that didn't happen before. And a lot of it has to do with the kinds of opportunities that people were enabled to have. So it may be well be that right now there are millions, literally millions of Elon Musks who are languishing in countries where their abilities are either not allowed to flourish, where they're not allowed to explore and be entrepreneurial. So it's not that we need to do something for them. In many cases, what we need to do is stop doing things to them, give them the opportunity to explore um, and innovate and uh, be entrepreneurial to generate the kinds of uh, uh, prosperity and benefits that the rest of us, from which the the rest of us can benefit um, without having to do anything, you know, thinking that um, we need to do something to or um, for them.
0: I want to jump into another one of your fallacies. Can you, Tell me what you think is meant by the phrase people over profits and why it's maybe a confused concept or or what your objections to that concept are. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, when people use that phrase, people over profits, what they um, what
1: they have in mind is something like you have a a company that says, well, what matters most to us is the profits that we either give to our shareholders or to the, the executives, the owners of the company. Um, and that the people who work for the company, you know the 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 non-executives, um, non-shareholders, the people working for the company, are basically treated and maybe even uh, thought of as fungible and interchangeable atoms. It doesn't matter who they are, or what the, you know, they're just numbers or something. And so the idea is that when decisions are made at a firm that treat human, the people who work at it, as if they were just you know these these interchangeable non-unique entities or maybe numbers, this is mistreating them, and it's treating it's paying attention to um, to profits instead of people. And I think I think that's generally what people mean when they talk about let's put people over profits. Um, so one of the things that I that I mention is that if you have a in a commercial society, if you're starting a firm, you want to be a successful firm in a commercial society. One of the things that that requires you to do, um, even putting aside you know whatever um, legal or regulatory constraints you might have, but just thinking about you know the, how I can succeed in a commercial society, if your three P's are protected, your person, property, promise, and mine are too. All of ours are. And the only way I can succeed is by figuring out some way to please you. So I have to think about, well, you know, if I want you to work for me or if I want you to buy my my good or my, uh, my product, my service, I have to figure out some way to make that worth your while because you're going to have other options. Um, and so in order to get you to work with me, partner with me, associate with me, transact with me, I have to create something, come up with something that actually makes it worth your while so that you think it's worth sacrificing whatever the money or the time or whatever it is um, in order to uh, have that exchange or partnership so what that can mean and what i think it actually does mean in many cases and i think this is underappreciated for a lot of businesses in places like the united states and many other places around the world a lot of, of firms is that um, they actually spend quite a bit of time thinking about their stakeholders not just their shareholders but their stakeholders so they're thinking about their employees they're thinking about their their customers they're thinking about their suppliers they're thinking about a whole range of a lot of people's interests and in, order for the company or for the firm to be successful. When we come to this question of people over profits, my suggestion is that, in many cases, and I think um, it's underappreciated how many cases, what managers or executives or the owners of a company are really doing is making, in some cases, heartbreaking decisions about, well, we have limited resources and we can't do all the things that we would like to be able to do. So we have to make decisions about should we allocate resources here, our scarce resources here, or should we allocate them here? And in order to make those decisions, they have to think about not just what would be a good use of their resources, but what's a better use than others. And so that often means that in order to protect these people's interests in our firm, we're going to have to lay some people off. Um, And that happens all the time. And, you know, maybe to survive as a firm, you have to cancel some divisions and go out of some markets and join other new markets and create new divisions as part of the creative and destructive process. Um, But all of that involves human beings and human beings cooperating. So I think those decisions are often made, especially at the margins, very difficult decisions about um, under risk and uncertainty about what's the best use of our resources, including our labor resources and the people that we uh, have working with us and that we would like to work with us, the customers and customers we would like to have as customers. Um, So all of those things involve very closely, I think, often involve people and thinking about individual people. Um and improving people's lives and um, the decisions people would like to make. So, I think when people say "people over profits," um, they assume that you're not, that firms are not thinking about human beings at all. But in fact, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, I think firms are. That's exactly what they're thinking about. But they're trying to make these very hard decisions about what's the best use of our limited resource.
0: That's a good answer. I'm ge- <laughs> I'm conscious of time, so I want to jump away from some of the specific fallacies and and ask you a couple bigger picture questions about this book in general um to start with it's very clearly a book about economics but it's also very clearly deeply informed by moral philosophy which makes sense given given your background can you talk about how you synthesize these two fields in the book a little bit just in broad terms and and whether or not it even makes sense to separate them in the first place
1: Thank you very much for asking that question. I appreciate you asking that. So one of the moral premises, um, I mean, I argue for it, but one of the moral assumptions that I make in the book that um, that I do say, you know, I, I try to base all of the fallacies on, they're at least based on things that um, that enjoy widespread um, agreement or consensus among economists, you know, across the um, the political spectrum. But one of the assumptions I make is um, is something that economists as economists don't really talk about much. It's a moral assumption. That I make and I call it the uh, equal moral agency principle um, and what I mean by that is that every human being is what I consider to be a a, a moral agent um, which means we have the free we and maybe uniquely among creatures on Earth but in any case for human beings we have the ability to make choices and we have the re, um, we can be held responsible for the choices we make I think that's what it means to be a moral agent and being a moral agent like that um, requires what I call a certain um, level of respect it grants us dignity, it requires respect. So we're treating one another disrespectfully and so immorally if we are not recognizing you as a choosing agent who can be respons- held responsible for your, uh, your choices. Um, now there are some difficulties at the margins, you know, this doesn't apply to children and there are other kinds of cases where people maybe don't have the full agency, but when you're speaking about normally functioning adults, uh, human adults, They are moral agents, and I think uh, I argue they should all be treated as equal moral agents, so none of them having any more authority, privilege, et cetera, than any other um, moral agent. So that's a moral premise um, that I argue for the book and I sort of assume in the book, but I think that issues in a lot of interesting implications. So economists as economists tend to say something like or tend to approach things like, all preferences. We're not going to pass moral judgment about your preferences. You know what we think we want to do is, typically speaking, we want to increase utility. Whatever increases utility for you and what increases utility for me, we're going to have a utility function. We're going to put it all on the you know the same curve, and we're going to figure out how to do that um, without passing moral judgment about what kinds of preferences are good preferences, et cetera. Part of my argument is that um, in talking about people's preferences and tr- and talking about trying to maximize uh, or satisfy as many of those preferences as possible. That already sort of builds in this conception of uh, moral agency that I talk about. So I just make it explicit. You know, we want to treat human beings as um, uniquely um, worthy and valuable. In other words, all human beings have value and worth, whether that comes from uh, nature or from God, they have um, inherent dignity and worth. But I think it also means that we are and can and should, and um, and I I do a little bit in the book, uh, say as moral agents, we are also capable of passing moral judgment about preferences, um, meaning not all preferences are equal. Um, So you are an equal moral agent, but it doesn't mean that um, anything you do is just as good as anything else. So I think economics as a discipline um, tends to concentrate more on just the satisfaction of preferences. It has come to do that, but in its foundations, including from Adam Smith going forward, it was really the marriage of these two things. On the one hand, what we think of as moral philosophy—what does it mean to lead a uh, a life well lived, a virtuous life for a human being? On the one hand, and then on the other hand, what are the institutions, the public social institutions, economic, political, et cetera, that enable people to actually achieve a life like that? And so, what I what I suggest is that economics can, as it were, really regain the power of its um, of the tools of its discipline, if it. Is willing to entertain the idea that there is such a thing as virtuous a virtuous human being, a virtuous life, a life well lived, as opposed to um, you know other kinds of lives that 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 have various kinds of errors, including you know deadly sins. And then we can think about the institutions that would be that would enable people to carve out a path for themselves that is actually a flourishing life, given the opportunities and constraints, et cetera, that they face. So I think putting those two things together conception of a, of the a human being as a moral agent, and then figuring out what the institutions are that both respect that and enable a flourishing life under them. Um, I think that's really the sweet spot for economics and philosophy.
0: Awesome. I'm going to list a few, one by one, I'm going to list a few historical thinkers that I that I, some more obviously than others, have influenced this book, and can you just say briefly about each, you know, how and to what extent or what ideas maybe were most central to hmm. finding their way into this book. So start okay. far back with Aristotle.
1: Uh, Aristotle, the notion of virtue, so um, that there are things that are virtues um, and that human life is uh, has a purpose. We're constructed in such a way that we can imagine what our immediate goals, what they should serve, which are inter- intermediate goals, which should serve an ultimate goal. Um, and so we have a telos or purpose to our life and we don't really understand what a life for human beings could be. Um, and we can't really develop a purpose for our life unless we understand what this ultimate goal of human life is. I think that's absolutely crucial. We won't be happy unless we understand or have some conception of what purpose our life can serve. David Hume. Ah, David Hume. So in many ways, uh, you know, David Hume is one of my uh, philosophical heroes, even though, I mean, he he and I disagree about a lot of things, Uh, but David Hume was one of the great, maybe the greatest uh, thinker in political economy. I think he scooped Smith a lot, (laughs) um but he didn't write a treatise on political economy he wrote a bunch of small essays many of which developed some of the uh, central insights that we would recognize today in economics and i'll just give you one example that free trade is mutually beneficial and that because uh, having allowing free trade among countries makes both countries or all countries the people in all countries better off we should actually be happy If um, other countries become wealthy, instead of being envious of them and wanting to destroy them and impoverish other countries, it's actually good for us if it's if uh, other countries become wealthy. That's a fantastic insight that I think is underappreciated yet today.
0: I'll pass over Adam Smith because that one's more obvious than the rest. And you start every chapter with an extensive Adam Smith quote. (laughs) How about um, Frederick Bastiat?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, the concept that economists call now opportunity costs. So, you know, he had this uh, great little story about a broken window, um, you know, and it raises the question of well, if we destroy something, you break somebody's window, um, that creates business for the glazier, the glass maker. Um, is that good for the economy? Um, well, Bastiat was one of the first, if maybe not be first, but one of the first really to articulate the idea that um, it sure looks like that's good for the economy. But what you're looking at is only what's uh, what he calls seen. You see the new window that's made uh, to replace the broken window. But what you don't see is what those same resources would otherwise have done. That's the notion of opportunity cost, And that is an absolutely crucial notion, figures in several, as you uh, are alluding to, I think, several places in my book about when we're deciding what we would like to do, we have to think not only about the benefits of a potential course of action, but also what are we giving up? And are there other courses of action that could lead to even more benefits? So, it's an, so this notion of opportunity cost is absolutely crucial.
0: The best cinematic dramatization I've seen of the broken window fallacy is if you've seen the, the film The Fifth Element, the villain oh, yes. deliberately breaks a glass onto the floor while he's kind of giving his villain speech about why destruction is actually good because all the little robots come out and clean it and it, it's productive uh-huh. of industry and activity and stuff and...
1: I don't uh, remember that. I've seen that. I saw that movie a long time ago. I'm going to have to check that out. I appreciate it, it'll that jump.
0: Tip. It'll jump right out to you. I'm sure it'd be an a entertaining way to <laughs> illustrate it to your students. I uh, thank you for that tip. I will yeah. investigate that.
1: That's
0: great. This one's more speculative. I'm, I'm going to read a quote. Um, but uh, Herbert Spencer. The quote is: "People are moral agents, and therefore should be accorded exactly the same scope of freedom—the maximum scope compatible with granting the same huh. to others." I just bring that up because it sounds very like Herbert Spencer's Law of Equal Freedom, and I was curious if there was any inspiration there.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, it does sound a lot like it, um, and I have read Spencer. I think I prefer the, the formulation actually from Kant. So Immanuel Kant has a very similar um, discussion in, of all places, the Critique of Pure Reason, um, where he talks about this law that he discusses plays quite a bit of a role in many of Kant's essays um, that um, maybe are somewhat underappreciated. But anyway, Kant formulates this idea that if we are all um, autonomous and rational agents, which is close to what I was calling a moral agent, um, but if we're autonomous rational agents, then that means that we have by right uh, an equal scope of liberty to make decisions that um, every other um, autonomous and rational agent has as well. So that's pretty close to what I think you, it sounds like you were reading from Spencer. From, from oh, that my, was a
0: quote. Yeah, yeah. That was your quote. Oh, I see.
1: Oh, and you were saying that that's. Um, it that, reminded that me of like Spencer. Spencer. Yeah. So um, so in Spencer, yeah, this is from the, uh, the data of what's it what's his book called? The data. Social or
0: statics or the social well, statics.
1: Yeah, social. Exactly.
0: That's uh, where he social. initially formulated it.
1: Yeah, so that you're right. That is that that is similar to that. My own maybe more direct inspiration was Kant, but I think there are some clear similarities there. Yeah.
0: He he references in a footnote, I think, in subsequent editions, that he didn't realize that Kant had also come up with something very similar and he and he oh. credits Kant with having come up earlier than he did with a similar, similar formulation. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um this I don't I don't think that you probably took intellectual inspiration from this person, but I'm mentioning Henry Hazlitt because I just oh. feel a family resemblance between this book and Economics in One Lesson, or I feel like I feel like this is in some ways a successor book as far as a popularly accessible introduction to economic thinking uh, that is not jargon-filled.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and I will uh, take that as a compliment because I think that's pretty good company to be in. Um, that's a pretty good book, uh, Economics in One Lesson. I think in spirit, I think it's a, my book is probably similar in spirit to that. Um, are there some things that we can some lessons we can learn from economics that would do a lot of good for us as individuals when We're making decisions in our own lives? And when we're evaluating policy, um, yes, there are and there are a lot of mistakes that we make pretty commonly. And um, and I try to you know, lay out some of them. And I think that's something like what he does. So I will I will take that as a compliment to even be mentioned in the same uh, in the same conversation with him.
0: It certainly meant that way. What's a book you might recommend that you think complements this book particularly well? Uh, You know, I might mention, well, there are a lot
1: of books, but one of them I might mention is uh, a book by Matt Ridley called How Innovation Works. Wonderful Um, book.
0: And let me just uh, say the title of my podcast, Ideas Having Sex, is directly stolen from Matt Ridley. But go on. I I, I wondered about that, uh, so it doesn't
1: surprise me that that's the case. Just about anything Matt Ridley wrote is uh, worth reading. I think that book in particular really lays out the kind of inspiring story that of all of the individuals who played some role, sometimes small and marginal, sometimes much larger in generating so many of the benefits and the beneficial products and services in unpredictable and surprising ways that we enjoy today and the kinds of conditions that are required to enable them to do it. Um, And I think it's a kind of implicit lesson that um, you don't have to command people to benefit us. If you just give them the opportunity, the freedom to do so, they'll figure out ways to do it. Um, so oftentimes all that's needed is a little bit of protection of their 3ps and a little bit of opportunity and people will innovate in all sorts of unpredictable and surprising um, and terrific and beautiful ways
0: that's a good answer are there any upcoming projects you're working on currently
1: uh yes well thank you for asking I'm uh, my next book that's coming out is a reevaluation of arguments um, in favor of and against uh, redistribution of wealth. Um, so I'm writing this in uh, conjunction with an economist named Stephen McMullen. Um, and the two of us are um, are sort of arguing with one another about whether redistribution, so government redistribution of wealth, um can it do what it's uh, intended to do? Um, is it something that uh, that a civilized society should have? What are the arguments in favor and against it? Um, that connects, obviously with some of the themes in seven Deadly economic Sins, but it's a, you know it's a, taking it in a slightly different way. And uh, we hope that that book will be uh, able to be adopted or uh, people will consider adopting that in classroom work.
0: Awesome. I look forward to it. Do you have a rough release date? So the, the
1: manuscript is just about finished. Um, you know, these days we have production is not quite as uh, snappy as it used to be, but the publisher is Rutledge Press. And I think they're going to be, um, if not by the end of this year, the beginning of next year.
0: Where can people follow you if they want to stay up to date on all the latest Audison goings on? I have a website, uh, which is
1: jamesoddison.com. It's just my name, .com. My Twitter handle is at J-R-O-I-I. Uh, you can find there. And so uh, when I give talks or um, when I'm, I'm writing things or having other, reading things that I think other people should uh, read, so making recommendations, I often do it on Twitter.
0: I, I just want to say this, this book was so much fun to read. I, I really couldn't put it down. And uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't had this much fun reading a book in in a while so i really recommend that people buy yeah. it 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 practically reads itself i'm gonna let you go i i just recalled one question i really wanted to ask you do you have a did you have a particular target audience in mind ideologically like in the way that you know hayek dedicated road to serfdom to socialists oh. of all parties yeah. is there is there someone in particular a uh, uh, yeah is there a profile of person you were trying to reach especially
1: uh, there was, but I wouldn't say it was ideological so much. Um, what I was interested in reaching was uh, somebody who is an educated person and who is interested, serious about wanting to uh, be able to evaluate, to be aware of and evaluate policy in a, um, in a productive and dispassionate way, but who has never really had any training in economics at all, didn't major in it, didn't study it, hasn't studied it, um, and so is curious to know and might be interested to know uh, what, if anything, economics might be able to contribute to Um, you know, a sound um, evaluation of policy. So that was really the sort of the person I was aiming at.
0: Well, James, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks for your compliments about the book, too. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate it, Chris.
0: Of course. That was James Audison, And his book, once again, is Seven Deadly Economic Sins, Obstacles to Prosperity and Happiness Every Citizen Should Know. You can find the book as well as other topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. If you're enjoying Ideas Having Sex, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or Stitcher, and please rate and review the show as it really helps to spread the word to new people. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.